Brad Hennick. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you could turn to Revelation 3. Revelation 3, we're going to spend some time today on the first six verses, which is the church in Sardis. As you remember, we're going through the seven churches of Revelation, and then in a couple weeks we'll jump into Revelation 4, and we'll talk about the things in the future. Remember the book of Revelation is really split into three pieces. The things that are, the thing, or the things that have been, the first uh, chapter. The things that are, chapters 2 and 3, which is the letter to the seven churches that Jesus wrote to each one individually. And the things which are to come, which is chapters 4 through 22. So right now we're in the middle of chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, the seven churches. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll get into the whole future scenarios that are listed in Revelation 4 through 22. So just be ready for that. The church that we're going to talk about today, the church in Sardis, is the fifth of the seven churches. So we've been through five letters. You're going to notice, thanks Rob for the, for the map. Uh, we started with Ephesus, and then we went up to Smyrna, and then we went to the Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. And so we're in Sardis today, and in Philadelphia, and uh, Laodicea. So you kind of see the sequence of where they are. They're all on the east, I'm sorry, the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. That was known as Asia Minor, and it was a significant chunk of the Roman Empire. These seven churches are real churches with real people and real problems, and Jesus is writing letters to address those specific problems in those local churches. In addition to that, each one of these seven churches are types of churches, and they represent every kind of church that has occurred throughout history. You can look at historical churches, and they all fall into one of these seven categories. So you can literally map the health or the ill health of a church based on one of these seven models. In addition to that, you'll notice at the end of every single uh, section on these churches, there's a phrase that says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's an individual application as well. So the stuff we hear today, one of the things we talk about in MANA pretty regularly is, before you leave class, I want you to write down one thing, one thing and only one thing that you will do in light of what you've learned. Because if you do nothing with what you learn, what's your chances of retaining what you've learned? Fairly slim. So we want just one thing. Don't write down five, write down one thing you will do, okay? Now remember that Jesus, any times he writes to the seven churches, he follows the same outline. He follows the same outline seven times. The first thing he does is tells us the name of the church and how the name of that church relates to the specific message to that specific church. So in verse 1 he says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, Now the name Sardis probably means remnant, remnant, or an escaped few, an escaped few. As we will see, Sardis only has a very small remnant of faithful members in the church family. There's a very few faithful, a remnant, and there are only a few that will escape God's judgment. Of all the letters to all the churches, this is the second most negative. There's very little positive that Jesus says about this church. When we get to Laodicea, you'll find out that there is nothing positive about that church. So this is one of the more uh, sober letters, if you will. A little, little bit about the background of Sardis. The city of Sardis was founded about 1200 B.C., it was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia. The whole kingdom of Lydia covered that western part of uh, Turkey there for a period of time. Remember on the map, it was about 33 miles southwest of Thyatira, and it was on a highway that went all the way from the Aegean Sea to the capital city of the Persian Empire, which was Susa. So they actually did have interstate freeways back then. They weren't four or five lanes, but they were highways, and they were trade routes. 
700 years before this letter was written, around 700 BC, Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was, uh, had endured for centuries largely because of its geography. It was built on the southern end of the Hemus Valley, which is a very, very fertile valley. And on the north side of this valley, there's a lot of mountain ranges. Uh, those mountain ranges have a series of, I want to say, spurs that jut off from the mountain range. How many of you have been to the ocean and you've seen a pier that juts into the water? A pier that you hook ships to? Same kind of thing. These mountain ranges had these high spurs that jutted into the valley like a pier. And some of these were very, very tall piers, if you will. This city was built on one of those plateaus that was 1,500 feet above the valley floor. And it was sheer rock. So I want you to think about being on the valley floor of this Hemus Valley, and the city of Sardis is on top of one of these spurs, if you will. It's a plateau that's 1,500 feet sheer rock face above the valley floor. So it's really considered pretty impregnable. It's very, very strong fortress. The city's really zenith and downfall occurred during the reign of a super rich Lydian king named Croesus. Back in the day, if you were really rich, you didn't say you were as rich as Rockefeller. You said they're as, well, as wealthy as Croesus. Okay, very, very wealthy. Now, this guy was not only rich, he was pretty arrogant. In 549 BC, he really initiated an attack on, on uh, Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Persia was the reigning empire of the day. That was a pretty gutsy move to attack them. And he got beat. So he retreated back to the fortress at the top of this 1,500-foot cliff. Uh, and he thought he was nice and safe up there. Remember that when you're in the middle of this kind of a cliff plateau arrangement, three sides of the fortress are just sheer rock face. There's only one entrance into the city. Very, very narrow. And they had that guarded extremely, extremely well. But during the siege, Cyrus came and sieged the city, one of the defender soldiers lost his helmet over the edge. And there was a hidden path down the face of the rock. Very, very tough, but you could do it. And so the soldier walked down this hidden path to retrieve the helmet. Problem. A soldier saw him do it. So that couple weeks later, they figured out how to get up that path, and, and they led their troops up to the cliffs at night. Unfortunately, when they reached the top of the cliff, there were no guards. No guards at all. The defenders had considered these walls too safe to need a guard. Too safe to need a guard. Is somebody trying to get our attention? <laughs> so the citadel was overrun, okay, uh, because they didn't guard a spot. It would said that even a child watching the cliff would have been sufficient to sound a warning, but they didn't think they needed that. And sometimes they fail to learn from history. 350 years later, Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis using the very same technique. He hired an expert climber to show him the way up the rock face and once again found the city walls completely unguarded. So twice in 350 years, this city had fallen simply because they were too lazy to post a watch, right? They assumed that their defenses were impregnable. They didn't have to post a guard. So by the time the Roman Empire came, came into being about the first century here, this city was just a shell. It was just a shell of what it had been at that point in time. Interesting factoid, Sardis was the home of Aesop. How many of you have ever read Aesop's fables, right? Do they still do that in school? Yeah. They still do, they still do Aesop's fables? Yeah, there's some good stuff there. Uh, interestingly enough, they thought that gold and silver coins were first minted at this city. Okay, coinage, minted. 
and it was also very well known for its manufacture of woolen cloth. That means you need to think sheep and garment manufacturing. In the valley floor below the fortress were five highways, a conjunction of five highways. So this was a major trade route. Unfortunately, trade routes also transported soldiers. So it was a very confluence for a lot of military activity as well. We have excavated Sardis. They've, they've uncovered a very, very large temple to Artemis, which is Diana. And actually, Sardis had multiple pagan religions, and a lot of them were focused on healing. So they were very big on physical healing. About two miles out of town, they had a, a very famous hot springs, and people would go out there, and uh, it was more than just hot water. They thought that the gods operated through this hot water, and if you went out there, you would be healed of your ailments at that point in time. And interesting other uh, factoid, this city was very, um, I want to say obsessed, that's probably too strong a word, but they were very preoccupied with death. They had a no large necropolis. A necropolis means city of the dead about seven miles outside of town, and apparently it was one of their um, items that they would go visit and uh, make some uh, religious ceremonies over. Major occurrence in 17 AD, a massive earthquake struck this whole region. 17 AD, Jesus would have been a teenager, a few hundred miles to the um, uh, south, and, and uh, anyway, 17 AD, a massive earthquake struck the region. It, in essence, fractured the plateau that the city sat on and destroyed the city, and the, the church we're going to study next week, Philadelphia, is about 25 miles from this city, and it destroyed the city of Philadelphia, too. So AD 17, they had a San Francisco-style earthquake, and the city never recovered from that. Today, in Turkey, there's a small village here named Sart, S-A-R-T-E. Uh, it's populated largely by buffalo, oxen, and a few herdsmen. So the city is really an object lesson to us today of degeneration and decay. Okay, that would be the takeaway. So Jesus, remember, he tells us the name of the city. The second thing he tells us is who's the author. Who's writing this letter? And he identifies himself as the author. And he describes himself in different language depending on the church he's talking to. So when he talks to the church at Sardis, he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, now he's identifying himself, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So Jesus describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. But I want you to underline the word has. The word has there conveys ownership and control. So the seven spirits of God and the seven stars are owned and controlled by Jesus Christ. He possesses them. As you know in the book of Revelation, seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of fullness. Uh, and as you also know, how many Holy Spirits are there? Are there seven? Now there's one Holy Spirit. So he, when, when you see this phrase, the seven spirits of God, he's not talking about seven separate entities. He's talking about a sevenfold ministry or function that the Holy Spirit uh, conveys when he ministers to the church. It probably references Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2, the work of the Holy Spirit is described using seven adjectives. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. So we have a sevenfold ministry, a completion, a perfection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11.2. The message here is very simple. All churches are designed to operate only under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. 
Only the Holy Spirit gives life to a church. And you're going to find out this church was not operating in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. They were operating independent from the Holy Spirit, and that's why Jesus said they were dead or Elvis. Well, not quite like that, but... <laughs> <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is in the control of the church, not human church members. Let me give you an analogy. When the human spirit is in charge of the human body, we get some phenomenal potentialities. I saw a video clip the other day of Chet Atkins. Ever heard anybody heard... Check he was playing uh, John Philip Sousa's The Stars and Stripes Forever on the guitar. I didn't know you could play that many notes, that fast, that accurately, that musically. I mean, I'm just looking at him. It's just amazing what happens when you have that kind of training and giftedness. But I want you to imagine a guitarist attempting that after they've suffered a massive stroke. That might be a little bit tough because when the body and the brain are permanently disconnected, what happens? Death results when the body and the brain are permanently disconnected. When the church is disconnected from the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens to the church? It dies. That's this church. That's the church in Sardis. It's very, very discouraging because they're disconnected and dying. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who has the living life that you need. I have the seven spirits of God, and I also have the seven stars. Now, the stars there, the Greek is angelos. It means messengers. And these are the pastors, the leaders of this church. Jesus says, I have those leaders of the church, and I call them out and I equip them to lead in every church. So the application for us is you should be praying every single day that your pastors in this church are daily, daily, daily connecting with Jesus because that's the source of life. And that's the message for us too. We tend to live independently. We tend to live independently. And you know how I know that? The number of things that Brad Hannig does every day without praying about them is embarrassing. I do a lot more things without prayer than I do with prayer, right? Would you say that's true for you too? I mean, there's a lot of things we just assume, of course I can do that without praying. I don't need Jesus' power to do that. Well, what do we sing today? Where's your breath come from? From him. Okay, if breathing is as basic as breathing, we depend on him for that. I would suggest that if there's going to be anything spiritually significantly happening, we must be dependent on him, and this church is not, and that's the problem. So now, the first step, Jesus tells us the name of the church. He identifies himself as the author, and now he's going to comment on the church's character and their conduct. With the previous four churches, Jesus always begins with a word of commendation, a word of affirmation. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're doing well. This church, he has almost no words of affirmation at all, and he starts off immediately with a criticism. He says, <clears throat> I know your deeds. And we go, okay, he knows your deeds. But then the next phrase is devastating. He says, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, when he says, I know, it implies his omnipotence. Jesus, the all-seeing, all-knowing Lord of the church, knows everything that's happening in each one of his churches, knows everything in ha that's happening in each one of our lives, too. Yes? Amen. Did he know what time you got up this morning? Oh, yeah. yeah, and he's monitored your thoughts ever since you got up. All of them. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, he's telling his church, I know what's really going on, not just what the external appearances are. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. He says, you have a name that you're alive. That means you have a reputation. This church, you've got a reputation. You have a distinguished past history. People look at you and they say, what a dynamic church. What an incredible church. 
God has a different opinion than people do about this church. Dr. Vince Havner has made a statement that spiritual ministries go through four stages, and sometimes this is true with our life too. Ministries begin with a man or a woman, they grow into a movement, <clears throat> they morph into a machine, and they metastasize into a monument. Man or woman, movement, machine, and monument. Now what's the difference between a movement and a monument? A movement's alive, a monument's dead. A movement looks forward, right? Visionary. Here's what we think God wants to do. A monument looks back. Here's what we did. How many of you have done any traveling overseas? Anywhere. <clears throat> what do we normally go see? Monuments. We go look at the past, right? We look at the history. We say, what a great museum Britain is, or France is, or Israel is, because we're looking at the past, as opposed to saying, what's going on currently? This church is a monument. There's a problem. They don't know it. They don't know they're a monument. From external appearances, this church looked alive. They were busy working. They were busy doing ministry. They were busy probably feeding the poor and uh, helping the homeless, etc., etc. But appearances can be deceiving. How many of you ever noticed a beautiful bouquet of flowers, right? Does it look alive? Yeah. Is it alive? No, no. That bouquet of flowers is dead. You know why? Because the stems have been cut off from the roots. The roots is a source of life of those flowers. Some years ago, our family visited the Smithsonian uh, History, Natural History Museum, and we saw a lot of stuffed animals. Those animals look alive, right? They try and put them in poses where they look like they're alive. Are they alive? They just look like they're alive. This church, really, Sardis, uh, is populated with spiritual corpses. <clears throat> it's populated with the living dead. You could call this church the first zombie church of Sardis. <laughs> right? Y'all, <laughs> you're, you're familiar with <laughs> Hollywood calls them zombies. Well, they were zombies long before Hollywood showed up. See, this church appeared to be alive. From a human perspective, it had a great reputation. There was a lot of activity. It was probably a big church. It was probably the only church in, in um, Sardis, a lot of activity going on. But the great physician puts his finger on the pulse of this church and he says, you're dead. That is an oxymoron. A dead church. How can you have a dead church when the Holy Spirit who brings life is living in the church? That's an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Freezer burn. <clears throat> Military intelligence. <laughs> Old news. Ill health. Pretty ugly. <laughs> you know, oxymorons, two words that seem to contradict each other, but in fact they fit together. And so the question is, how do we have a dead church when you have the God of the universe called the Holy Spirit living inside us? This church was dead in the sense that they were disconnected from their heavenly father in the same way that the prodigal son was disconnected from his heavenly father, right? So here's the key idea. When you become disconnected from Jesus, you begin to die. When you become disconnected from Jesus, you begin to die. And don't think that takes six months or a year. You can become disconnected from Jesus just by not paying attention, right? Have you ever noticed if you fail to read the word and you fail to pray for a couple of three days, what happens to your spiritual power? The flesh just takes over. Something comes out of your mouth and you go, where'd that come from? Well, you haven't been hanging around with Jesus very much the last two, three days, right? 
Here's how we know that. John 15. You want to cross-reference John 15, 5 and 6. John 15, 5 and 6. I am the vine. You are the? He who abides in me, that's connected with me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do? Nothing. Zero. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, <clears throat> he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. If you ever pruned a grapevine, you understand that if the, vine, if the branch is not connected with the vine, it dries up, the leaves dry up, and there's no fruit at that point. So when you're separated from the source of life, you die. Sardis is separated and disconnected from Jesus, and they're drying up. They're dying. And they're not dying from scandal. They didn't suffer persecution from the outside, like Smyrna. They didn't have any false prophetess on the inside corrupting them like Thyatira did. This church wasn't changing the world. This church had become the world. Here's how it works. Most of the people in this church had been allowed to become members even though they weren't believers in Jesus. They were unregenerate, right? How many of you know churches that will accept people into membership that aren't Christians? There's lots and lots of churches that have people preaching in the pulpit that aren't Christians. You see them on TV. Some of them have very, very big churches. Those people don't all know Jesus, folks. So if the pastor doesn't know Jesus, what's the chances the congregation is going to know Jesus? Pretty slim. Do you think we have Sardis churches in the United States of America? Thousands and thousands and thousands of them, right? We have all kinds of these churches. Most people had been allowed to become churches even though they were not Christians. They had never been born again. They never experienced life in the first place. They were dead in trespasses and sins like we all were. Ephesians 2.1. So there was virtually no difference between this church at Sardis and the world. They had divorced Jesus, married the world, and they were dead. Now, how do you know you are a part of a dead church or a dying church? Let me give you some clues. If you're looking for symptoms of a dying church, you know a church is dying when they, when they rest on past accomplishments. Looking in the past. That's a monument. You know you're part of a dying church when they're satisfied with the status quo. If you ever attend a church where it's all about maintaining the status quo, that church is in the process of dying, right? You're either growing or you're dying. If your body doesn't produce new cells, the end is in sight, right? You've got to be growing or dying. Same with the church. Dying churches are more concerned with rituals than they are with people's relationship with Jesus, right? Dying churches focus on external social change. That's the core gospel they have not internal spiritual change. It's not that you shouldn't do external social change, it's just that that's the focus. Yes. Dying churches focus on external social change, not internal spiritual change. Dying churches focus on material management rather than spiritual ministry. They focus on the stuff. It's all about the buildings. It's all about the grounds. It's all about the material stuff, not spiritual change and serving people's spiritual needs. Dying churches want to please men more than they want to please God. And here's a big, big, big one. Dying churches want to be comfortable rather than convicted. See, when you come to this church, you are going to walk out of here convicted, yes? How many of you have ever walked out of here with a knife in your heart? The truth of God's word penetrates us and says, you need to change. You need to realign your life with the Word of God. You need to move yourself, and that's uncomfortable. And many, many, many people do not want to be uncomfortable. 
They would rather go someplace where someone says, you're fine just the way you are. You're going to die just the way you are in trespasses and sins. You need the regeneration of Jesus Christ. And that's what this church is about. That's why God is blessing this church. That's why we're growing. We need to keep that vision forward. What does Jesus want to do? So the church at Sardis was like Polaris, the North Star. How many of you ever watched the North Star? Ever seen that? It's the tail end of what? The Little Dipper? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Polaris is 323 light, 323 light years away. Now it takes, that basically says, the distance that a light can travel in one year is a light year. So there's 323 light years between us and Polaris. It means it takes light 323 years to get from that star to planet Earth. Now for all we know on planet Earth, Polaris could have burned out 300 years ago. And we won't know it for 23 more years. Because that's how long it takes the light to get here at that point. <clears throat> Some churches are just like Polaris. They've burned out years ago. The Holy Spirit hasn't shown up on that campus in five years, and they don't even know it. Right? You want to look at a biblical character that you can relate to Sardis, I want you to look at Samson. The biblical character of Samson and Sardis. Now, Samson, as you recall, was gifted with tremendous physical strength. And he was supposed to use that physical strength to free Israel from the slavery to the Philistines. Unfortunately, a lot of times Samson used that great physical strength for what? Selfish and sinful purposes, not the purpose for which God gave him that great gift. However, when you look at the life of Samson, he sins and then he does a great exploit. And then he sins and he does another great exploit, right? It doesn't seem to matter. God has not withdrawn his power from his life even though he was in sin. You know Samson's problem? He assumed that the power was his. I own this power and my behavior is not going to matter to God. Well, God made a commitment he was going to free Israel from the Philistines, and that promise was going to be kept even if Samson was going to disobey. But God, in his mercy, gave Samson ample time to repent, and finally he didn't. So Samson forgot that his power was on loan from God. How many things in your life are on loan from God? Do you treat that like that? You know how I know we don't believe that? What happens when he takes it away? What happens when God touches something that you and I say, yeah, it's on loan, until he decides, okay, if it's on loan, I want it back. And we go, ha, ha, that's mine. You can't touch that. That's my kid. That's my grandkid. That's my health. That's my money. That's my, you can't touch that. Was it really on loan? Or do we now think we own it? Now we put our hands around it. And we grab it, and then God's got to peel our hands away like your kids, you know. Give me the chocolate. Give me the chocolate. Right? <laughs> he disobeyed Samson, finally disobeyed God one last time. He got his hair cut, <clears throat> and God left him. You want one of the saddest, saddest scriptures in all of Bible, Judges 16, verse 20. <clears throat> Judges 16, verse 20 is one of the saddest verses in all of Bible. Remember, she cut his hair, Delilah did this. The Philistines came in to capture him, and Samson said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. In other words, I've still got this physical power. I can fight 20 guys and beat them. Here's the phrase. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He didn't know that the Spirit of God had left him. He wasn't aware of it. And it says, verse 21, Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. All right? Here's the principle. 
sin not only distances you from God, it deceives you into thinking that God won't discipline you for it. Sin not only distances you from God, it creates distance, it deceives us, it blinds us, it causes us to believe the lie that God won't discipline you for it. Samson had drifted in sin so far away from God that when God left him, he didn't even notice it. I've talked to, I don't know how many couples, <clears throat> and from time to time, someone will come in and say, you know, we're getting a divorce and I never saw it coming. I never saw it coming. You know what that tells me? The relationship was so distant already that when one spouse decided to formalize the separation, it had already been separated, right? We just weren't paying attention. I believe that some spouses get blindsided. They really didn't know there was going to be a divorce because they've gotten used to living with a lack of intimacy. And that's what we do with Jesus way too often. We get used to this distant relationship with Jesus, right? We get used to talking in with him occasionally, right? I mean, if you talk to your spouse only once a week, how would they feel? They'd feel great, Brad. It'd be really, you know. <laughs> if you want intimacy, you've got to communicate. You know, Jesus wants to hear from us and he wants to speak to us. And Samson drifted away and divorced, and he was surprised when it happened. He didn't think it mattered. Sin always matters. Never tolerate sin in your own life. Never. I know you don't want to tolerate sin in somebody else's life. It's real easy for me not to tolerate sin in somebody else's life. Much harder for me not to tolerate sin in my own life, right? And that's where it needs to start. So as a Christian, everything we do should be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for life. Sardis had slept away into separation and their relationship with Jesus was drifting away into divorce. So Jesus now, he tells them the situation, you're dying. He now gives them a prescription. Here's what you need to do about it. Verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which you're about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. He says, wake up. That literally means chase away sleep. Chase away sleep. Another word for that is watch. It means to continuously watch, continuously remain on alert like a watchman or a sentry, you know, on guard duty, you have to stay awake. What are you supposed to watch for? Well, you're supposed to watch for Jesus, number one. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You're also supposed to watch out for yourselves. Watch out for yourselves. Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation, right? Sometimes we fall into temptation because we're just asleep. And then Satan comes by and gives us a hook and we take it, right? So watch for Jesus, watch for yourselves, and then watch out for each other. Acts 20, 28 says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. One of the reasons I put up here life together, one, man is all about life together. One of the reasons we come here is because there are people that can watch our backside. You need people that have your back. When I say that, do you know what that means? I have some friends who are in law enforcement. When they have lunch, they sit facing each other, and, and I'm all about covering your back. I'm looking at everything behind you. We're across the table to see if there's any threat to you, and you're doing the same for me. That's what life together is all about. It's covering each other's back spiritually. It means having people in your life that love you enough to tell you the truth. You know, you got doggy breath on that issue. We need to help deal with that, okay? I love you enough not to let you drift into divorce 
I love you enough to bring you back, right? That's what family does. That's what family should do. Ever been driving a car and your eyes start to feel heavy? And your head starts to nod? And you kind of drift and you feel like, oh, you're right on the edge? Or if you have one of those ones that will, the seats will, will rattle you or you hear a little noise? That's when you better chase sleep away, right? You better turn on the radio, you better roll the window down, you better stop the car, you better walk around, you better wake up. Jesus tells this church, wake up. You know why he told them that? Because twice before, their city had been overrun because they were asleep. If any, if any church should understand wake up, it'd be this one. They lost the city twice because they weren't waking up. So he says, wake up, pay attention. Here's the principle. Wake up. The victories of yesterday will not win the battles of today. This church obviously had a fabulous history. But at this point in time, they were dying. And the victories of yesterday were not sufficient to win the battles of today. How many of you follow sports at all? How come it is so hard for a team to repeat a championship? I mean, once they win, how, how come it's so much harder to do it two years in a row? Or three years in a row? Well, they're a target for everybody. Pardon? Their thirst has been quenched. They did it. They're not hungry anymore, and they drift into complacency. That's exactly what happens to successful churches. You start saying, wow, we're successful. We're doing our thing. We can now sit back and rest on our laurels. Oh, no, you can't. You took everything you took to fight yesterday's battle. Are you going to have peace and safety tomorrow? You know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow? More battles, right? You need to depend on Jesus for tomorrow because you're going to have more battles tomorrow. You can't go to sleep tomorrow. You stay awake spiritually. So once you wake up and face the problem, Jesus now gives you the next step. He says, strengthen the things that remain, which we're about to die. This is a call to action. What he basically says is you've got a very few signs of life in this church. There's a few faithful members. The fire's about to go out. The patient's about ready to die. You better get ready with CPR now, right? You've got a few things that are working. It says strengthen. The word strengthen means to establish or, interestingly enough, to stabilize. Do you know what we want to do in the ER? We want to stabilize the patient. So they stop going downhill. If they continue to go down here, they're going to die. So you'd like to stabilize the patient so you can begin to do the work you need to do for the long-term health of that patient. So he says, whatever you're doing in this church in Sardis that is pleasing to God, do more of it. Strengthen it. Is there a message for us? I'm not sure. Yeah. If somebody wants to go up and tell that character to cool it. So anyway, he says, I have, not, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. So they were doing works to enhance whose reputation? Their own reputation. This church was doing lots of good works, but they were doing it to honor their own reputation, not honoring Jesus' reputation. So their works made no eternal difference. This church was guilty of the sin of Babel. How many are familiar with the Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel, right? The people who built the Tower of Babel built it according to their own plan for their own glory. Genesis 11.4. And they said, come let us build a tower for ourselves, a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, 
a name lest we be scattered across the face of the earth. Who was getting the glory with that tower? Not God. It was all about them. So this church at Sardis was doing a lot of the good things, but they were doing it in their own power for their own glory. And God says, you're dead. You're dead. So the question for us is, check your motives. When you're ministering, when you're serving, why are you doing it? Is it to minister? Is it to serve? Or is it to manipulate? Whose glory is going to be getting here at this point in time? All right. So wake up. Strengthen what remains. And the next step is to verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Here's the principle. You cannot walk with Jesus unless you walk away from sin. You can't have Jesus and your sin at the same time. It won't work because he won't put up with sin. You cannot put your baby in a sleeping bag with a rattlesnake. It won't work. Get the picture? That's as dramatic. Sin will kill you the same way as a rattlesnake in your sleeping bag will. I mean, it's not good. So he says, remember, that means to call to mind, recall. This church had a really bad case of spiritual amnesia. We ever had spiritual amnesia? How many of us have forgotten the number of things that Jesus has brought us through in the last five or ten years? He says, make a list. Make a list of God's faithfulness to you in the last year or two. Just make a list. He brought you through this. He carried you through that. He did this. He's proved himself faithful. He saved you from that. Right? Because we're in the middle of a battle. You know what we think? He's forgotten me. He's forgotten me. You know something? God never forgets. And if you make a list of his faithfulness, we sing, great is thy faithfulness, make a list. It'll renew your faith. Right? That's remember, number one, what God has done for you. Number two, keep it. means hold it fast. Hang on to it. You don't need more information. You need more transformation. You know what he's basically saying? Don't read any more books about exercise. <laughs> Just get off your blessed assurance and sweat. <laughs> right? I'm already to have you stand up. Some of you are kind of going, oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm very much awake up here, guys. I'm telling you, right? So you actually have to get out and do the spiritual. Yeah, I know I should read the Bible. Yeah, I know I should pray. Yeah, I know I should witness. Yeah, I know I should fellowship. Well, then do it, right? Sometimes I run to the people. Oh, I haven't been to class in a while. You know, two years. <laughs> a while. You know, Satan loves to distract you away from God's people because if he can get you isolated, he can pick you off real easily. Because he's got you alone in the world. You know what this world is? This world is a sinful cesspool. I mean, it is. You've been out in the culture lately? It's a mess, right? Now, we're called to transform that by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we can do. But you got to come and get your battery charged, right? So remember, recall, um, uh, retain, and then repent. Learn to hate sin. What do we tell our little kiddos when there's a problem on this campus? Walk away. Walk away. You know, a five-year-old or a six-year-old child that comes across a rattlesnake or a black widow will probably walk away. Why is it that we adults want to go play with it? You put a rattlesnake out here, I'm going to want to see if I can get him to do something. I will. I've done it. 
I'm not saying that takes brains. It's probably a <laughs> testosterone poisoning or something. But you know, that's kind of it's the nature of human nature. Learn to walk away from sin. Just develop an intolerance toward it. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you sick about it. Walking away is repentance. Walk away. Now Jesus says, I'm going to give you the consequences if you don't walk away. Verse number, halfway through verse 3. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come upon you. He says, he doesn't say, if you cannot wake up. What does he say? If you will not wake up. So sleeping is a choice. Sleeping on guard duty is a choice. Sleeping on the job is a choice. He says, I want you to choose to stay spiritually awake and alert. He says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. Now, a thief comes with an intention to do you harm or to help. Most thieves come with an intent to harm. I would say that's a pretty high percentage. When do thieves generally operate? Under the cover of some kind of concealment. You know, whether it's you know, they don't, whether they're breaking into your house, they'll do it at night. If they're cyber thieves, they don't post and say, by the way, I'm now hacking your account, so be on the alert. They hack your account, and then you find out later that someone stole your identity after they've spent all the money at that point in time. So, like a thief in Scripture always means sudden, unexpected, and it always denotes judgment. Jesus never comes for his church like a thief. He comes for his church like a bridegroom. He comes to the world like a thief, those that are in opposition to him. He says, if you refuse to repent, I'm going to come in judgment, and I'm going to come when you're spiritually asleep and unprepared. And he emphasizes it when he says, you will not know at what hour I come. Have you noticed that thieves usually don't call ahead to make an appointment? <laughs> Generally, they don't call to make an appointment, right? So we are typically unprepared, typically unprepared. Now, this city had been conquered twice because they were unprepared. You know and I know that much of life is unexpected. Yes? How many of you anticipated an automobile accident two weeks before it occurred? How many of us anticipate we're going to get a, a, a cardiac arrest and uh, we knew it was going to happen in 12 days? How many of us figured that we were going to have a job downsizing, but when it occurred, it still took us by surprise? How many of you got a phone call from a family member and you said, I wasn't ready for this? Most of life is unexpected. Most of life's unexpected. You know what your preparation is? Stay close to Jesus. How often? Every day. This church was dead because they were disconnected. So the message for us is, is stay close to Jesus. Stay connected. Stay in relationship. Stay obedient. Now, Jesus now gives them some commendation. In verse 4, he says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there's a few ones that Jesus knows by name, his sheep, and they've not soiled their garments, which means they've not smeared or polluted or stained them. They haven't sinned and not confessed it. See, here's the point. Whether you just happen to fall in the sewer or you choose to swim in the sewer, you still stain your clothes and you still stink, right? Say yes. yes. Here's the point. You don't have to stay smelly. You don't have to stay dirty. You can use your spiritual bar of soap. What's your spiritual bar of soap? Confession. 1 John 1, 9. Confession, as Daryl said. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us, right, from all unrighteousness. 
So there were a few people in Sardis, even though they were sinners, they were regular confessors. And they were white. They were washed. They were clean. And Jesus knew them by name. And he says, you're going to walk with me in white. Now, you, if you're going to walk together, you've got to be in agreement. If you're going to walk with Jesus, he doesn't walk with unconfessed sin. You've got to confess that sin and have him purify you. Because before we come to Christ, our self-righteousness is what? Filthy rags. But we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we are worthy because he is worthy. And by the way, one of the neat things in heaven is you never have to worry about sin. You're done. You will be free from temptation. That'll be an incredible experience. Verse 5, here's the promise. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his book from the, from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Here's the principle. God promises power, purity, and security to those who honor him. God promises power, purity, and security to those who honor him. Now, overcomers are all believers. Overcomers are all believers. If 1 John 5, 5 tells us that what overcomes is your faith. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're an overcomer. And he says you're going to be clothed in white garments. In ancient periods of time, white garments represented two things. Festivity, a big party, and victory. Sometimes those went together. Now, we have a marriage supper of the land coming up, but we're all going to be wearing white. So white symbolizes purity as well. Back in the day, when you had a victory parade, the conquering general always wore solid white, as did his followers. So everybody had a white toga back in the day because that was for victory, that was for purity, and that was for festivity, right? So you're going to have a white robe. And it won't because you're good, it'll be because Jesus is good. And he says, I will not erase his name from the, Lamb's book, from the book of life. So here's the question. Does God have an eraser in heaven? Yeah. Are there any erasers in heaven? Good question. This passage he's talking about applies only to believers or to overcomers. He says to Christians, here's the point. No one became a Christian by good works. Therefore, no one becomes a non-Christian by bad works. Your salvation never depended on your goodness in the first place. It depended only on the goodness of Jesus Christ. You cannot lose your salvation because you never earned it in the first place. He did. And the God who never lies says, you're secure. So anytime someone comes along and says, you can lose your salvation, not if you know Jesus, you can't lose your salvation because you didn't earn your salvation in the first place. It's all his work. It's none of your work. We're saved by his finished work, not our own finished work. So he says, I will not erase. That's a double negative. So it's a promise of security for the believer. And he does this because he pretty much tells them the whole church is in deep trouble. But he's got a few that belong to him. He wants to reassure them. I know you. I know your name. I know you're walking with me. You are mine. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Even when I judge this church, you're in my hand. I've got you. Right? I'm going to protect you. And he says, I will confess your name before my father. This is language of rewards, right? I will acknowledge you in heaven before my father and the angels. I will claim you as my own at that point in time. And I will publicly approve of you in heaven. And then in verse 6, he says what? You who listen to this message, you who read this passage, you who belong to me, I want you to do something with it. I want you to follow it. I want you to apply it. I want you to obey it. Now that you know it, do it. All right. Here's the summary. Here's the key idea. When you become disconnected from Jesus, you begin to die. That is a choice. 
Someone told me 30 years ago, you have as much intimacy with Jesus as you want. Wow, you mean I'm in charge of that? Uh-huh, because he never moves. If you want to be closer to Jesus, guess who's in charge of that? You are, right? You are. If you want to be closer, you know how to do it. Confess, repent, obey. Sin not only distances you from God, it deceives you into believing that God won't discipline you for it. Just because Samson didn't get disciplined right away didn't mean that he wasn't going to get disciplined in the end. And the strongest man in the world wound up grinding grain in a mill as a slave, blinded. Sin is expensive. Sin is expensive. Wake up. The victories of yesterday will not win the battles of today. It requires alertness and staying close to Jesus because he's our power source. You cannot walk with Jesus unless you walk away from sin. You cannot do both. By the way, if you want more intimacy with Jesus, then the sin has got to go. You can't get rid of it, but he can get rid of it for you. You know, it doesn't say confess your sins and then you can give the bar of soap and then you'll wash yourself. He says, I'll do the cleansing. I'll do the cleansing. You just present yourself. Lastly, God promises power, purity, and security to those who honor him. And that's a choice that we make how often? Every day. Every day, every day, every day, every day. Okay. I love you guys. And because I love you, I tell you the truth because that's what God says in his word. Now that you know, go and do.